Well, good morning. Good to see you this morning. My name is Paul Ramsey, uh, like Ryan said, and I am honored to be with you this morning. I'm preaching the word to you as a church planting resident here at Sojourn. Uh, I'm currently a member at Sojourn Galleria, been there since 2017. Before that, was here at Sojourn Heights for six years as a covenant member uh, and then leader. And then just kind of God has walked me by his grace on kind of a, uh, in a, kind of a stepwise form towards church planting. So it's an honor really to be back here, back home with you guys preaching the word. Um, by God's grace, we're currently in the early stages of planting a church in the southwest corner of the inner 610 loop, the Brazewood Place area between Meyerland and Reliance or NRG Stadium. And we started our parish, just to give you a quick update, we started our parish in October. Um, we have, uh, uh, we were meeting on Sundays at five. We're in a season of establishing healthy rhythms as missionaries, as a community in preparation for our first few parish multiplications, which will then, Lord willing, lead us to setting a date to prepare to launch Sojourn Brazewood. If you live close by uh, the Brazewood Place area, or if you know anyone, whether or not they know Jesus, who lives close by us, please uh, come talk to me afterwards. Get my email from any of the Sojourn, any, any of the Sojourn Heights staff or elders. I would love to be in touch with you to connect with people in our area. Um, and if anything, uh, you guys sitting in this room, I'd invite you uh, to add us, add me and us into your weekly or perhaps more frequent prayer rhythms. I'm eager to see what God is going to do with us as we plant this church in the Brazewood neighborhood. And as, a, as an older, wiser man once said to me, he said to me recently, uh, he said, if you're expecting God to move, if you're wanting God to move, um, you've got to pray the price for what you're hoping to get. And so I want to invite you all to join us in praying the price for this movement of God that we're hoping that God continues through the Sojourn family in the Brazewood neighborhood. Um, please help us pray the price for this movement of God. So again, it's an honor to be with you this morning. If you're new here, if this is your first time visiting, sorry about all that. We're so glad that you're with us. Um, we want you to know that you're welcome here, whether you consider yourself a Christian or whether you are just here kind of by obligation for a friend or a family member. We're so glad that you're with us. We want you to know that you're welcome. With that said, let me jump in. Before we get to our passage in Luke 15, though, uh, turn with me, if you would, to Ezekiel chapter 34 for some important context. The book of Ezekiel is in the Old Testament. It's about two-thirds of the way through your Bible. Um, the more time you spend in God's Word, the reason we're going to Ezekiel 34 is that the more time you spend in God's Word in, in the Old Testament and in Jesus' words in the New Testament, the more you come to realize that in just about everything that Jesus says, His words are dripping with Scripture. And by that, I mean the Old Testament uh, I heard recently from a biblical scholar of the time of Jesus' life that Jesus' interest in his teaching ministry was not so much giving new information, but giving new interpretation. So in his, in his teachings, including these parables, Jesus' primary concern is to show his listeners that all of the promises from the Old Testament are coming to fruition today, now. He's looking at his followers, he's looking at the religious leaders and saying, all of these promises that you already know and have been looking forward to from the Old Testament scriptures are finding their yes and their amen in me, the son of man, the one who has come down from heaven for your sake. And so his words in these two parables for this morning are no exception. For that reason, let's look briefly at a story that would have been quite familiar to Jesus' hearers, that would have been called to their minds almost as soon as he began talking 
uh, so that we can hopefully approach this text the way that his hearers might have approached it. It would be kind of like if I were to talk to you guys about a small town girl living in a lonely world who took a midnight train going These would be very familiar words like those. (laughs) Not a journey song. But Jesus is is using phrases, very similar words, to point them to this very story from Ezekiel chapter 34. Ezekiel was a prophet of Israel from 593 to about 571 BC. So this is later in the in the this is one of the youngest books in the Old Testament. During God's or during Ezekiel's life, God's people were in exile, and this exile was brought about by God in response to their unfaithfulness to the call to God's word uh, that He had give, given them to live by. And in chapter 34, Ezekiel is talking about some promised future blessings for his people who are in exile. And he gets to this promise by asking and, and really addressing this particular question that they're, they're no doubt asking. How did we get here? God's people are scattered in exile among the nations, and they're asking the question, how do we get here? And Ezekiel is giving chapter 34. He says, this is why you're here. Without mincing words, he puts his finger on the problem. He says the problem is Israel's leaders, the shepherds of Israel, Ultimately, they are the ones to blame for allowing God's people to wander and wind up scattered like sheep without a shepherd. I'd like to read two chunks from Ezekiel 34 and talk about them briefly. Here's the first. This is verses 1 through 6. Let me read, starting in verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds. Thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered. You hear that refrain. My sheep were scattered over the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. Let me stop there. You're probably already hearing words that sound like the words that Ryan read from Luke 15. Stay with me for just a moment. What's the problem here? The leaders of God's people, the shepherds of Israel, had received this commission from God to protect and to feed the flock, and they had grossly neglected their task. In fact, they hadn't just neglected to do what they were supposed to, they had actively done the opposite of what God had given them to do. Rather than feeding them, you have been feeding on them, God says to them. Rather than strengthening the weak, you have exerted your strength over them with force and harshness. Rather than seeking the strayed and the lost, you've been looking out only for yourselves, leaving God's sheep scattered over the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. And so the result says in verse 10, God says, behold, I am against the shepherds. Verse 11, the question is, what is God going to do? Verse 11, still in Ezekiel 34. Let me read a little bit more. It says this, thus says the Lord God, behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all the places where they've been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness and I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and I will bring them into their own land and I will feed them. So how's he gonna fix this? Verse 15, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. 
I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured, so forth and so on. God says through Ezekiel, what you have not done, shepherds of Israel, I'm going to come and do myself. It's a beautiful passage. We're, giving, we're given essentially two pictures here in Ezekiel 34. One, we're given a picture of the failure of these old corrupt shepherds. They've fattened themselves at the expense of the lives of their sheep. They've misled the people and they've left the sheep scattered like sheep without a shepherd. The second picture that we're given though is this picture of a successful new shepherd who is to come. Right, it will be God himself who will come down to chase down and gather, to heal, to restore the wayward, wandering, scattered flock of God's people. He will, in verse 16, seek the lost, bring back the strayed, bind up the injured, strengthen the weak, the fat and the strong will be destroyed. So after this promise from Ezekiel 34, God's people had been waiting hundreds of years for this promised one who was to come. This shepherd, God himself, was going to come and chase down his people. And so with each successive generation, you can imagine all of the mothers in Israel who had given birth to sons wondering, is this going to be the one? Is this the promised one from God? Hundreds of years, Israel's waiting for this good shepherd to come and chase down the lost. With that said, let's fast forward 600 years back to Luke chapter 15. Turn with me to Luke 15. As we come to these parables about seeking earnestly for something has been lost, with the first of these two parables being none other than a lost sheep and a shepherd leaving the 99 to chase it down, you can understand now that this is more than simply a familiar metaphor that he gave to a shepherding people. This connection would not have been lost on Jesus' hearers. This moment that Jesus begins speaking about going after the lost sheep, his hearers' minds would have immediately gone to the song, Don't Stop Believing. It would immediately have gone to Ezekiel 34, this story. Furthermore, the people Jesus is speaking directly to in this parable shouldn't be lost on us. Gives us an ironic kind of emphasis to Jesus' words. Look at verse 1. Now the tax collectors, this is Luke describing the situation. The tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to Jesus to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And so Jesus told them, the Pharisees, who are grumbling at him for, for spending time with sinners. He tells the Pharisees this parable. So Luke sets the scene for us by describing this beautiful picture of Jesus' magnetism for those who are far off. These lost sinners are drawing near to Jesus to hear him because his message is good, his teaching is good and welcoming. And the Pharisees, these shepherds of God's people who are supposed to be chasing down these very lost ones, are grumbling off on the side. Who the heck is this guy? What's he doing? This excellent teacher of Israel is spending time with these sinners. With both of these parables, the lost sheep, the lost coin, we see kind of an identical four-part, I'll use four parts, uh, to the structure of these parables. Um, with nearly identical phrases, these two, the, the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, are basically the same story with replaced details. The first thing in both stories, we see that something is lost. Right? What man of you having a hundred sheep if he has lost one of them? What woman of you having 10 silver coins if she loses one coin. So the, 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 the parables both begin with something that has been lost, something that is of value to its owner, having been lost. Second thing we see is that they both interrupt whatever they're doing to seek for and to find this lost thing. The man leaves the 99 other sheep in safety and goes after the one that is lost until he finds it. The woman 
takes a lamp, sweeps the house, and seeks diligently until she finds this lost coin. So in both stories, we see this interruption so that we can seek and find this lost thing. The third thing we see in these two, two parables is that when they find this thing that was lost, they rejoice, and they don't just smile saying, I'm glad I found this, but they throw a party. When the man finds the sheep, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing, and when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. The woman who finds this coin, she too calls together her neighbors and friends and says, come, rejoice with me, for this coin that was once lost, that I lost, I have now found. And then the fourth thing that we see in both of these parables is an application as, as an application of this celebration, Jesus tells, gives the reason for these parables. He says, the point of these parables is clear. I want you to know that heaven rejoices over every single sinner who repents, turning to God for forgiveness in life. That is the point of these parables. Verse 7, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. Verse 10, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God in heaven over one sinner who repents. What I want to do uh, with the rest of our time this morning is look at three things that Jesus is doing for his hearers here, and then three things that I think that he's inviting us to do today, um, and then we'll be done. So first, let's look for a moment at what Jesus is doing in these parables. Parables are well-known, intended to be stories that are multifaceted in their meaning, so this is not an exhaustive exploration of these parables, but I want to point out at least three things that I think that Jesus is doing for his hearers. For one, right off the bat, Jesus clearly addresses the Pharisees with his opening rhetorical question. He rebukes them. So the first thing that Jesus is doing is he's rebuking the Pharisees for their continuing the failure of the shepherds of God's people from the days of Ezekiel. When he asks in verse 4, what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one of them, doesn't leave the 99 in the open country to go find this one who is lost? He's looking right at the Pharisees as he says this, giving a subtle but clear word of judgment over this failure. Right? And the Pharisees would have known exactly what Jesus was saying to them. Thinking back to Ezekiel 34, seeking the lost, that's a phrase that you heard repeated time and again repeatedly throughout chapter 34. Jesus is looking at the Pharisees and saying, without saying it right up front, he's saying, Pharisees, you've blown it. This should have been so obvious to you that this is your task as leaders and you've done the exact opposite. But he's saying, I am the good shepherd and I am here to shepherd my people. I am here, Jesus is saying, to usher in a new age. I'm taking the leadership of my people away from you and replacing it. In chapter 16, Jesus goes on to tell the parable of a dishonest manager, and he makes his point abundantly clear. He says, turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. He's yanking the mantle of leadership of his people away from the Pharisees. And his disciples, Jesus' disciples who are listening to this exchange, as they hear these words that Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, Jesus is preparing them for the commission he's about to give them. The mantle of this leadership that Jesus is lifting off of the shoulders of the Pharisees, he is then going to give to you, my disciples. He's preparing them for the commission. You are the fishermen that I'm going to be sending out to gather up my lost and wandering people. So the first thing that we see in these parables, Jesus is announcing a change in leadership. He's announcing the fulfillment of Ezekiel 34, that promise when God says, I am coming to do this work that you have failed to do, O shepherds. Of Israel. Ah, shepherds. Oi, woe, shepherds of Israel. 
I'm coming to do what you have failed to do. The second thing that I think Jesus is doing is subtle, but I believe crucially important, if you'll allow me that pun, which you'll see in a moment. Notice that in both of these stories, these owners seek after the lost things that they have lost until they are found. Right? They don't come back, they don't search for a while, then come back and say, at least I tried. This is a success mission. The shepherd chases down the lost sheep until he finds it. This woman chases, searches, seeks, seeks diligently for this coin until she finds it. Jesus is saying, where you have failed, Pharisees, he's not saying, I'm going to do my best. He's saying, where you have failed, I will succeed. I will find my lost. As Jesus says in John chapter 6, I will lose none of those the Father gives to me. The picture we're given in these parables is a particular kind of pursuit, a kind of relentless pursuit that doesn't give up, that doesn't run out until the object is achieved. This calls to mind when Jesus uh, talks about how often we are to forgive. His disciples ask them, well, Jesus, how, are we, how often are we to forgive our brother when they sin against us and ask for forgiveness? Jesus answered them 70 times seven. Long story short, he says, you always forgive them. Right, this relentless forgiveness. Not only is this the opposite of what the Pharisees are doing. Right? They're grumbling at these sinners who in their minds don't deserve another chance, but this is exactly what Jesus is doing here. He is giving, he's extending this chance, this call to these sinners, and it's pointing ahead to what Jesus is preparing to live out to the fullest. Here, Jesus is saying, I will chase you down and I will chase you down to the uttermost. Think for a moment about who Jesus is. Jesus is the Son of God, right? God himself made flesh who has left the splendor of heaven to come and dwell with us, and his face from the very beginning was set towards the cross, the task that was set before him. Why did he come down from heaven? More than simply to proclaim the coming of the kingdom of God to earth, he came to usher in this new kingdom, this new order, to begin the unraveling of all that is dark and evil in the world through his death on the cross and his victory over that death and the resurrection. Let me put it this way. Jesus spoke these simple parables about a lost sheep and a lost coin, saying, I will chase you down. And even as he tells these parables, he gives us a beautiful, really heart-wrenching picture of what he was preparing to do. Look with me at verse 5. What does Jesus say when this man finds the sheep? What does he do with the sheep? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing as he brings it back to the herd. What an intimate picture this is. We get this picture of a great deal of tenderness that Jesus has, the shepherd has for his lost sheep. And we also get the picture of a great deal of labor. And this is right in keeping with the work of a shepherd. When a shepherd finds his lost sheep, like in real life, a real sheep uh, that's wandering, rather than trying to point, prod, and lead the sheep back to the herd, the shepherd picks up the sheep, rests it on his shoulders, and carries it back to the herd. This is what Christ is saying, brothers and sisters, friends. Out of his tender care, Jesus is about to take the weight of his world on his own shoulders and carry it back up the mountain. He bore that cross that was given to him up the mountain, the cross on which he would ultimately be hung. And why does he do it? What does it say? Hebrews 10, or excuse me, Hebrews 12, verses 2, it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross, this rejoicing shepherd carrying the sheep back to the herd. 
Jesus didn't come as a prophet alone just to find us and tell us here's the way back to God, to point, prod, make us walk our way back himself. No, as the good shepherd, he takes the weight of our lives on his shoulders, our sin upon his shoulders, that he might bring us back to the Father. We just sang that song, Not in Me. My weary load was borne by him, and he alone can give me rest. Jesus came that he might shoulder the sheep. You and me carry us up the mountain to rejoin the herd. And in this, we see the third thing that I think that Jesus is doing in these parables. He's showing us, I believe, the true heart of God. At the end of both of these parables, Jesus ends with this picture of joy on the part of the shepherd who finds the lost sheep, the joy on the part of the woman who finds this lost coin, and then he explains this joy. He says, just so, just like this, there is joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. For one, this again stands in stark contrast with the, with the posture of the Pharisees who are grumbling about his association with sinners. And we see that the failure of the Pharisees to lead God's people in God's way is that they have the exact opposite of the heart of God. Where God desires mercy, they desire judgment. Where God desires that we draw near to sinners, the Pharisees are standing back, grumbling at a distance, wanting nothing to do with them. Jesus, though, gives a picture here of what he wants us to see. The Father's joy at finding what was once lost. This is the reason for which Jesus came to earth to seek and to save the lost because he loves us. That famous verse, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son. Know the truth. Jesus is saying in these parables, when you come to God in repentance, you will not be met with judgment, but with joy. Not just a smile, but a heavenly celebration neighbors, friends, family, everyone is invited to come to celebrate with God over the one who was lost, who is now found. And even as he addresses, notice this, even as Jesus addresses the Pharisees in rebuke, notice that this is his closing point for them too. Right? He wants them to know that there is great joy in heaven when a sinner repents. Back in Ezekiel 18, which we didn't read, but I'll I'll read it right now. Ezekiel 18, God said, even of the wicked, have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? God's making this point. I don't have any pleasure in anyone, even the wicked dying. I want all to repent, to turn and live. This is the God who says of Israel in Romans chapter 10, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Even the Pharisees, in other words, are not too far for Jesus. He is extending his hand here even to the Pharisees. Even in the middle of this rebuke, he's saying, repent, for I love even you. Even as he tells them of this new order of leadership, even as he tells them, your leadership is done, I am ushering in a new generation of leaders, he's saying, you can join too, Pharisees. All you need to do is repent. And we know that this happens. The Apostle Paul was himself a Pharisee who God brings in, chases down. He brings him in into repentance and uses him to change the world. So in these parables, we see that Jesus is inviting us to consider the depths of his longing for our restoration through repentance, which is accessible and available to all. And he wants us to see the joy that awaits him and all of us when even one sinner turns to him in repentance.
So what does that all mean for us? There's many things, but I want to pick just three things that I think that Jesus is inviting you and me to in this passage this morning. The first thing that he's inviting us to do, I think, is in keeping with that third thing that he's doing. Jesus is inviting us to look at him. Just look at him. From the moment of the fall of humanity into sin in Genesis chapter 3, the eyes of all of humanity have been turned downward. You might be familiar with the story. Adam and Eve were tempted, and when they gave in to that sin, what was their immediate reaction? Their eyes went down, and they saw their nakedness, and their eyes have been down ever since. When God calls out to Adam, how does Adam respond? Rather than looking at God and saying, I'm sorry, he looks to his wife and says, she made me do it. When, what was Eve's response? Rather than looking at God, she looks and says, serpent, it's the serpent's fault. Rather than looking at God, all of humanity ever since has been hiding from his gaze. But feel in this passage Jesus drawing your eyes upward to tell you that he loves you, inviting you simply to repent. Because he knows that when you, look, when you see the look on his face upon coming to him, all else will melt away as you are reunited with your maker. Think about this with me for just a moment. The human gaze is a very powerful thing. Right? Eye contact is a very intimate thing. That's why a lot of people don't make eye contact in today's world. This has probably always been the case. And truthfully, this is all I want from the people I love the most, my wife and my daughters. We have a three-year-old daughter, Tallulah, and when she's disobedient, and I'm disciplining her, I'm not a perfect father by any means, but in my best moments, when I'm disciplining her in disobedience, the first thing that I try to say to her every single time is, Tallulah, look at me. Tallulah, look in daddy's eyes. Because I want her to see that I am looking at her with love. Tula, I don't hate you. I'm not furious with you. And she's sitting in my lap, squirming, trying to get away, trying everything to avoid looking at me. And then every so often, we have a moment where she does look at me. And we pause for a moment. And I get to show her and say, I love you. Won't you listen to me? She has a hard time doing it. She has a hard time looking at me in the eye. We all have a hard time looking God in the eye when he invites us in our moments of sin and weakness where we choose to disobey him. He invites us just to look at him and come to him. Turn away from your sin, from your fear, and look at me. Tell me where you are so that I can look right back at you and you can see my face because seeing my face changes everything. When you look and behold Jesus, Brothers, sisters, friends, you will not see him with arms crossed in judgment and annoyance, not with disinterested acceptance and resignation. Okay, fine, you turned to me. What you see is Jesus not with arms crossed, but with arms open wide, as if fixed there by some cross, saying, come to me. I'm here. I want you back. When you behold Jesus' face, it's a face of loving mercy, rejoicing that you have come back to him your good father. When we look at him, we see God for who he truly is, a loving savior who sees the depth of our sin far deeper than we could ever imagine and yet loves us enough to go to the cross for us and give everything to win us back. Look at him. Perhaps as you look at him, you will hear him calling, come oh, come to me, as we sing in that song, come to me. So that's the first thing 
that I think Jesus is inviting us to do in painting this beautiful picture of joy in response to repentance. He's saying, look, look at my face. The second thing that I think Jesus is inviting us to do, very simply, is repent. Repent. And this is a word that appears throughout the Bible. This is not the first time we've heard a, a, a prophet, a teacher, a word in the Bible saying repent and turn to him. Because we're, but, but the thing is, we are hardwired not to repent. Like I said uh, just a moment ago, at the moment of the fall, we have been hardwired to try to hide our shame ourselves. Like Adam and Eve, we try to sew fig leaves together to hide our sin, to hide our shame. For us, fig leaves uh, could be all kinds of things in our lives. Our fig leaves are our careers, right? our, 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 our busyness, our constant busyness and, and flurry of activity. The pursuit of success could be moral living, could be good parenting. As long as I am X, then I'm, then I'm good enough for others, good enough for God. Could be being the best friend you can be, could even be filling a leadership role in the church. We try all kinds of things to cover our sin and shame so that we don't have to look at God ourselves. We try self-atonement of all kinds so that we don't have to apologize. To give a simple example, when I wrong Lindsay, my wife, sometimes I'll do my best to try to make up for it before I apologize. So that when I admit my wrongdoing, you know, I can, I can at the same time say, I'm so sorry I did this, but look at it. I've cleaned the house. I canceled the trip for a couple weeks from now. I've done all these great things, so I'm really awesome, and you should be really thankful for me. And of course, she melts every single time, just like the movies. You know, he brings the flowers and the diamonds, and all is good. No, that's not what happens. The truth is that that actually doesn't hardly ever work well for me, even with my wife. How much more foolish is it to think that I can do the same thing with God? We fill our lives with all kinds of distractions, trying to avoid coming to God with true repentance. But here, Jesus brings us this gospel to show us not only is he overjoyed to receive our repentance, but he is seeking us out, chasing us down, even now, inviting us to come to him in repentance. Listen, some of your lives are on fire right now. Some of you are deeply ashamed of something from your past, something from this past week, the lies that the enemy wants both you and I to believe about these things go something like this. If we admit who we truly are, then we will be met with judgment or whatever it is for you, ostracization, abandonment, punishment, whatever, whatever you're most afraid of. That's what you're tempted to think will happen when you bring out these hidden things in your life. Man, when people find this, about, this out about me, um, they're, they're going to discount me. They're going to toss me out. That's what Satan wants us to believe. But here's the truth. God is not going to meet your repentance with judgment. He's not going to meet your repentance with punishment or with abandonment or with chasing you out saying, you know what, all that stuff, great, but this one thing, that was too far. God left heaven to come down and bring you home. He came down from the mountain to search you out and to find you. And when we turn to him, he is pleased with us. I'm still, at this point, I'm still leading worship on Sundays at Sojourn Galleria most Sundays. And during the prayer of confession, during that time of confession, I've said on occasion this, the, the beautiful truth that if you, know, if you wanna know a prayer that you can be almost, you can be certain 
not almost. You can be certain that God will answer in the affirmative. Then look to God and ask in Jesus' name for the forgiveness of your sins. And you can know that God will not just cross his arm and say, fine, that's good enough. He will receive your confession with joy, beam down on you with pleasure and say, welcome back, my daughter. Welcome back, my son. I'm glad you're here. So what does this mean? Lent is a season in which we reflect upon our need for what Christ offers us on the cross. And that's the season that we're in right now. But we're not meant to just look at what Christ did on the cross and dwell on it. We're not only supposed to do that, we are also told to do something with it. For one, just the one thing, come to God. What does repentance look like? Come to God with confession. That's a word that you've probably heard before. Come to God with your confession. In addition, though, and I might even say that many of us need to hear this part more, come to each other with your confession. You might be familiar with 1 John 1, verses 8 and 9. It's a key teaching from the Bible on confession. It says this. It says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's a beautiful truth, 1 John chapter 1. The question is, how and, and when is one to do this? How do you confess your sins? James 5.16 gives us a picture. James, the apostle James, says this. He says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. A pastor named Richard Foster wrote this about confession. He said, confession is a difficult discipline for us because we all too often view the believing community, the church, as a fellowship of saints before we see it as a fellowship of sinners. We feel that everyone else has advanced so far into holiness that we are isolated and alone in our sin. We cannot bear to reveal our failures and shortcomings to others. We imagine that we are the only ones who have not stepped onto the high road to heaven. Therefore, we hide ourselves from one another and live in veiled, live in veiled lies and hypocrisy. But then, Foster goes on to say this. He says, God has given us our brothers and sisters, to stand in God's stead to make God's presence and forgiveness real to us. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it, a man who confesses his sins in the presence of a brother knows that he is no longer alone with himself. He experiences the presence of God in the reality of that other person. As long as I'm by myself in the confession of my sins, everything remains in the dark. But in the presence of a brother, the sin has to be brought into the light. And brothers and sisters, in that moment, I am learning this discipline myself. In that moment, there is pleasure, there is healing, there is forgiveness, and there is mercy that washes over us as we experience God's presence to us and for us through a trusted brother, a trusted sister, a trusted community. And finally, the third thing that I think that Jesus is inviting us to do is this. I think he's inviting us to go out into the world to seek out the lost sheep. I didn't leave myself enough time to address this point in full, but let me say this. Jesus has replaced the, le- the leadership of his old shepherds with this new order, this new priesthood, a new group of ministers. Right? You and me, those who have been made f- by faith one with Christ to carry on the ministry of seeking and saving the lost. Go, Jesus says, and make disciples. Go, and chase down the wandering and the lost. Look at Jesus here. What does it say about him in verse one? Tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. The question I wanna ask you, brothers and sisters, is this. 
could you be accused of the same? In case you didn't know this, in our cultural moment, Christians are known as judgmental. We are known as the people who say no. We are known as the people who think that we're better than everyone else. We're known as the people that you can't share anything bad about because then they'll distance themselves from you. If you didn't know that, that's how people outside the church see those inside the church in the U.S. right now. And so here's the question. Who in this room has lived their life in such a way that those who in our culture are convinced that Christians hate them, but for some reason they know you and they know that whenever they come to you they will be met with love and acceptance? Who in this room has lived our life with those outside the church in such a way, in the way of Jesus? Do people far from God feel accepted and valued when they are in your presence? Even your enemies. Christ left his throne in heaven to chase down the lost sheep. Do we leave the thrones of our lives to chase people down? Those who are far from God those weak brothers and sisters who were at church with you last year but have fallen off, those neighbors who know that if they set foot in the church, they're just convinced they're going to be met with judgment. I know I need to hear this word this morning, and perhaps you do too. But Jesus is looking at his disciples, he's looking at you and me and saying, this mantle I'm giving to you. Take my yoke upon you, and oh, how much lighter it is than yours. As you take this yoke upon you, give me the yoke of your life and I will carry that burden on my shoulders up the mountain so you don't have to. I'll give you the yoke that you were made for. I'll give you a net, go fish. I'll give you a bag of seeds, go scatter them. I'll give you a sickle, put it into the field and harvest. I will give you gifts, go use them, go build my kingdom is what Jesus is inviting us to do. Go seek and save the lost. Brothers and sisters, let us be the best lovers of God and the best lovers of people who are far from God that the world has ever seen. May God do this in us by his spirit. And in order to do this, though, we must first come to him in repentance. And in order to come to him in repentance, maybe for some of us, the first thing we need to do is to look at him and see that he is worth our repentance, to see that he is good. Fix your eyes on him. Jesus Christ the Savior of the world who's calling to you, come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. And may God, through our beholding him, through our repentance and through our love of the world around us, make us more into the kind of people, the kind of ministry, the kind of shepherds that he intends for us to be. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we love you and we thank you. I thank you for your word and for your spirit. Lord, thank you for this particular word, this encouraging picture, this beautiful picture of a shepherd who came to seek and to save the lost. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for being our good shepherd, for seeking, to coming to seek and to save us. Lord, help us to look at you and see you for who you truly are. Not a God of judgment, not a God of detachment, but a God of intimate love, inviting us, wooing us to bring our cares, bring our burdens before you. And empower us by your spirit, Lord, to do just that, to bring them before you. We can't do it on our own, and that's why you came to do it for us. So carry us up that mountain, please, Lord, and help us 
Help us as a people to go and extend this ministry to others, to extend this offer, this picture of your joyful grace over the lost coming to know you. We love you, God. Pray that you would make us better lovers of you than we have ever been before, better lovers of this world that they have ever seen before, that we might see a revival of people captivated by your loving grace. Oh, good shepherd, for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.